everyone. We'll be in Acts chapter 19 this morning, verses uh, 21 uh, through the end, and maybe the first verse of chapter 20. We'll talk about that. Sacred symbols and spaces, sacred rituals and holy days, sacred language, sacred music, national hymns, sacred texts, sacred stories of sacred leaders and heroes. These sacred things are the elements of civil religion, according to New Testament scholar Michael Gorman. He also says that civil religion is the result when leaders make the sacred political and when they make the political sacred. One of the themes that Luke wants us to see in the book of Acts, and we've seen it several times, and in just a few minutes I'm going to go back and review some of those, is the relationship of the way. The relationship of the followers of Jesus, of the church, of God's kingdom, to civil religion. What happens when those two entities come into contact? I preached a sermon on Acts 14 specifically about what happens when the gospel confronts civil religion. And I said in that message that the gospel sometimes divides communities because it unites those the community wants to keep divided, like men and women, slave and free, Jew and Greek. Citizens of Rome becoming citizens of heaven can create chaos from Rome's perspective. This morning we're going to look at a powerful story of what happens when civil religion confronts the way. Before we do that, I want to take just a few moments to summarize some of these confrontations that we've already seen, that we've already witnessed in our journey through Acts. It really starts back in chapter 4 when some Jewish leaders seize the apostles and have them put in a public jail. They're miraculously delivered by an angel and they continue preaching. When the authorities find out about this, they find them and warn them again not to preach. And this is where we get the famous line from Peter, we must obey God rather than men. The Jewish leaders wanted to execute the apostles. But the Pharisee Gamaliel spoke up and he said something like this. If this isn't from God, then it will come to an end on its own. But if it is from God, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. So they released the apostles after they're beaten and warned them again not to preach. In chapter 6, we have Stephen. He's arrested after he does many signs and wonders. And after the Jewish religious leaders figure out they can't debate with this guy. We can't win with against Stephen. The Jewish leadership, as well as some of the people, are incited against Stephen. They bring him before the council and ask him, is it true? Is Jesus going to destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us? Stephen, we're told, with the face of an angel gives a lengthy defense where he summarizes important events in Israel's history, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses in particular. But he ends his defense, his speech, with this line, You stubborn people, 
with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, just like your ancestors did. Stephen is stoned to death. In chapter 12, we learn of the execution of James by Herod, and it pleased the people so much that he imprisons Peter. Peter's delivered by an angel, and he gives no speech before Herod. He has no opportunity for public defense of his preaching of the gospel. But he goes to John Mark's mother's house and tells the story. And we're told that Herod went away in this kind of strange story and was eventually struck down and eaten by worms. In chapter 14, we find Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. Paul heals a man who was lame from birth. The people began praising Paul and Barnabas as Hermes and as Zeus. Paul tries to convince them that they're just human beings proclaiming the gospel and the good news. And he urges these people to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Then some Jews who had caused problems for Paul in other cities arrive and instigate the crowd in Lystra against them. They drag Paul out of the city, stone him, and leave him for dead. But Paul gets up, he goes back into the city, and he leaves the next day. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. Paul exercises a demon out of a fortune-telling slave girl. When her owners realize the financial impact of her deliverance. They drag Paul and Silas before the authorities, accuse them of throwing the city into confusion by teaching unlawful religious practices. The authorities have Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. That night a great earthquake occurred, opening all the doors in the prison. Do you remember the story? The jailer wakes up, sees the doors open, and thinks the prisoners are gone, and he's about to commit suicide because execution was the consequence of letting your prisoners go. But Paul and the others do not flee, but they stay, prompting the, the jailer to ask that famous question, what must I do to be saved? He and his whole family were saved. And Paul and Silas are released the next day. More recently in chapter 17, Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica. The Jewish leaders become jealous at the success of their preaching. So they stir up a mob against them. Not able to find Paul and Silas right away, they bring Jason, remember him, and some other believers before the assembly and accuse them of acting against Caesar's decrees by saying there is another king named Jesus. Jason and the others are then released after paying bail. Then in chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. He's not arrested or beaten or ordered not to preach, but we're told that his spirit was greatly upset because the city was full of idols. This brings us Paul's well-known speech at the Areopagus or at Mars Hill, where he tells the Athenians that God is near to them, but not because humans have created him, but because he has created them. He urges them to repent in light of the coming judgment. In chapter 18, Paul and Silas and Timothy are in Corinth testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. The Jews attack Paul and bring him before Gallio, the proconsul, on charges of unauthorized teaching. And if you remember this, Gallio really wants nothing to do with anything. He tells the Jews to handle it themselves. He wants no part of it. 
Now in chapter 19, Paul arrives in Ephesus. He helps some followers of John the Baptist complete their journey to Jesus. Then he preaches in the synagogue for three months until he's forced out. After that, he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, where he preaches and teaches for two years. Luke tells us that God acted powerfully through Paul. All kinds of signs and wonders, miraculous healings, deliverance from evil spirits, and many turn to become followers of the way. Turning to Jesus and repenting from their old story, we're told that they brought out and they burned magic books worth 50,000 days wages. And that brings us to where we are this morning. Chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now, after all these things had taken place, Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. He said, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So after sending two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed for a while in the province of Asia. At that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen. He gathered these together along with the workmen in similar trades and said, <clears throat> Men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business, and you see and hear that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but in practically all of the province of Asia, by saying, that gods made by hands are not gods at all. There is danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing, and she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. When they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with the uproar, and the crowds rushed to the theater together, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. But when Paul wanted, wanted to enter the public assembly, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the provincial authorities who were his friends sent a message to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had met together. Some of the crowd concluded it was about Alexander because the Jews had pushed him to the front. Alexander, gesturing with his hand, was wanting to make a defense before the public assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for about two hours. After the city secretary quieted the crowd, he said, men of, uh, men of Ephesus, what person is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the keeper of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image that fell from heaven? So because these facts are indisputable, you must keep quiet and do not do anything reckless. For you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If then Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against someone, the courts are open. 
and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another there. But if you want anything in addition, it will have to be settled in a legal assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to explain this disorderly gathering. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The story seems to begin, harmlessly enough, with Paul resolving in his spirit, or possibly in connection with the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go through Macedonia and Achaia on the way, strengthening the churches there. Then he says, I must see Rome. The rest of Acts is about this decision. Will Willeman points out that Luke presents Paul's journey to Rome in a very similar way that he presents Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. And he says this, The Christian way, though not without suffering, is no solitary, melancholy journey, but a walk with Christ, who has not abandoned his faithful ones, like Paul, but will lead them through grief to glory. Part of this grief that precedes glory is the suffering Paul endures as his message confronts and is confronted by civil religion. Paul, having made this decision to depart Ephesus for Jerusalem and then Rome, sends Timothy and Erastus ahead to Macedonia. So while Paul's waiting to leave, a great disturbance takes place. Has anything ever happened to you like that while you're just waiting for something to come to an end? I think of the time we sold our house back in Nebraska. Was it? I don't remember if it was like the day we listed it. Like we had everything like nice and clean and neat and orderly, and the girls broke a window <laughs> in the front of the house. Right? It's like while you're waiting for these things. My brother in Houston just purchased a new home, and then the hurricane came, or fortunately for them, didn't quite come. But it's always kind of while you're waiting, right, that these great disturbances break out. A silversmith by the name of Demetrius starts counting the cost of following Jesus, literally counting the cost. I said last week, right, like it's all well and good. You can challenge my theology. You can challenge my philosophy. You can challenge my psychology. But don't touch my wallet, right? So we just had that story. Someone's sitting there counting up how much those books were worth. And I wonder if it's Demetrius. Because he's counting the cost for sure. He wants to know how much the turning of others is going to cost him. Again, it makes me wonder if he's not the one adding up the value of the magic book bonfire. (laughs) Demetrius makes good money for himself and for others by making silver shrines. These would have been little replicas of the temple of Artemis. He gathers a group of businessmen who also profit from the Artemis cult, and he warns them that their prosperity is at stake because so many are turning to follow Jesus. And this would have been a powerful and persuasive argument, I'm sure, 
in the smoke and in the scent of the burning books. They agree with Demetrius and respond by becoming enraged, shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They can't seem to find Paul or anyone we've really ever heard of, so they drag two other followers of the way to the theater. The riot grows and continues there. A Jew named Alexander tries to speak, but only stirs up the mob even more. Finally, the city secretary or the city clerk. Now this sounds like kind of a minor position. This would have been the highest ranking civil authority in the city. He reminds the crowd that they shouldn't worry and that there are proper channels to go through if they want to pursue the matter legally. Some have read the story as having a negative outcome, that it's kind of a defeat for Paul and for the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. Paul wants to defend the gospel, but he can't. His brothers and sisters won't let him, and he has friends in high places who urge him to stay away from the theater. Not only does Paul not get to speak, <clears throat> but notice, no one does. No one gets the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in this 24,000-seat amphitheater. And there's really no resolution to the story. The crowd is dismissed, and Paul leaves for Macedonia. But what stands out to me, the only time a Christian speaks in this story is Paul's expression of his desire to go to Rome in verse 21. Everyone else who speaks in this passage is from the opposition. Yet in a strange way, the opposition speaks for Paul. And I think they have revealed that Paul has preached the gospel accurately and that they have understood what the implications are. So I want to take a look at what Paul's opposition say. And in doing so, I think that Luke wants us to see the answer to this question. Does following Jesus, does the way, present a threat to the state or to the civil religion? In fact, I'll go ahead and answer that question before I even show it to you. And the answer to that question, it depends. It depends on whose perspective you're looking from. Yes and no. The church, as it lives the life of Jesus, is a blessing and a curse in the face of an earthly kingdom's civil religion. The first speaker in this story is Demetrius. He understands what I call the lifestyle threat of following the way, of turning to Jesus. Demetrius understands the lifestyle threat. His prosperity and the prosperity of many others is derived from devotion to Artemis. He made little silver shrines. None have been recovered Silver would have been typically reused rather than just buried or thrown away. But archaeologists have found lead and terracotta shrines, as well as forms that would have been made for making them out of silver or other precious metals. It seemed that there was a shrine to fit anyone's budget. If you lived in first century Ephesus, you would have likely had a shrine in your home, perhaps at your place of business. In the morning, you might burn some incense there in devotion to Artemis as a way of asking her blessing upon your day. 
There was money to be made by other means as well related to the worship of Artemis. Any meat you would have purchased, if you were wealthy enough to do so on a regular basis, would have, had, would have been meat sacrificed to Artemis or some other god or goddess. If you were in construction, you were probably building the latest and greatest building to honor Artemis or the emperor. Much of the economy in Ephesus was driven directly by the civil religion. And even if it wasn't tied directly to the worship of Artemis, you were never out of her shadow Let's say you made sails for boats. Nothing in particular about sailing that has to do with the worship of Artemis. But you would have had to have belonged to a guild, to a trade union of sorts. And your guild, whenever they would meet, would make some kind of sacrifice. Some kind of tangible indication of their devotion to Artemis or to whatever god or goddess they were seeking the help of. Demetrius knows what he's doing. He understands the financial impact of so many turning to follow Jesus. Demetrius speaks the truth, especially when he summarizes Paul's message. And I love this. Gods made by hands are not gods at all. Paul was preaching it right. Demetrius heard it right. There's no confusion here. What he says is true. And it's equally true that the prosperity of many will be impacted if too many start believing in this Jesus and turn from their devotion to Artemis, to other deities, and repentance and turn to Jesus. Notice what else Demetrius says. Not only are there prophets at risk, but so is the temple. And so is the goddess herself. Now, I think this is civil religion in a nutshell. Whether it's in Ephesus, whether it's in America, name your country, name your period of history. Demetrius doesn't know it, but he's making a profound theological statement here. Artemis derives her greatness from the worship and devotion of the people. If they stop worshiping, then she and her glory diminish, decrease. This is the god or goddess of civil religion. The people define and determine the glory of the gods rather than the glory and the greatness of God defining and determining the people. Paul's God, the father of Jesus, does not grow in glory or in power because of the worship of his followers. Rather, the worship of his followers is made possible because he has revealed the glory and the power and the beauty and the majesty that he already possesses and invites others to worship him, to acknowledge what is already true. Remember during Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday? A crowd of his disciples were rejoicing and praising God. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then some of the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke these disciples. And Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth. If they keep silent, 
the very stones will cry out. Our praise, our worship, our voices raised to God do not make him great. We're simply invited to acknowledge his greatness. And if we don't, someone else or even something else will. Not so with Artemis, not so with the gods and goddesses of civil religion. If she loses the worship and devotion of her followers, her very existence is at stake. I called this earlier the lifestyle threat, and I didn't really explain that phrase. What I mean is this. What we see in this story is that Demetrius understands that following King Jesus and turning away from Caesar and from Artemis results in a lifestyle that will begin eroding away, chipping away at the greatness of civil religion. It's not a battle for power. Christians in Ephesus are not seeking some kind of political revolution won by who has the most money, the most weapons, or the most influence. They're simply working out the gospel in their lifestyle. And this does indeed have an impact on the culture. Demetrius understands the lifestyle risk. The second speaker or speakers are the Ephesian rioters, the mob. And all they say, we're told, is great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They shout it for hours. What are they saying? They are simply being passionate citizens of Ephesus. They are being patriotic. Demetrius understood the lifestyle threat. The Ephesians understand what I am calling the loyalty threat. In response to what they see as disloyalty to Artemis, to Ephesus, to Rome, to Caesar, really to their civil religion, they did, after all, refer to Jews and Christians as atheists. They are boldly proclaiming their loyalty. It's a statement about Artemis, but it's really a statement about the passion that they had for her. If they had Facebook in the first century, they would be posting images of Artemis with the caption, share if you're not ashamed, right? We've seen things like that, I'm sure. One of the ways that Christians were put to the test in the first century and subsequently, were by putting them into situations where they would have to declare their loyalty to civil religion, to Artemis or to Caesar or to some other god or goddess. Would they say it? Would they even whisper, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, just to avoid the repercussions of not doing so, the consequences of being disloyal, of being unpatriotic, In preparation for these messages on Paul and Ephesus, I read a book, and I've referred to these books before. Um, There's a series of them. This one was called A Week in the Life of Ephesus. They're a series of historical fiction works by New Testament scholars, experts in the culture and background of the first century. And they're written in order to teach the reader what life was like back then, to try to get us to use our imaginations to picture What would it have been like to live in first century Jerusalem or Corinth or Rome? What would it have been like to be a slave 
And in this book on A Week in the Life of Ephesus, part of the story is this. There's a slave. His master is an influential um, high priest of Artemis in Ephesus. One of his slaves, a young man, has become a follower of Jesus somehow. And he has very largely stayed loyal to his master. And he works hard and does what he asks. But on occasion, he has been unable to obey completely because of his devotion to Jesus. He's been unable to declare his loyalty to the civil religion. His master uses his slaves perceived a lack of patriotism in a very disturbing scene as an opportunity to teach his son how to beat a slave into submission. A day, or so, a day or so later, the master's wife, who has compassion on him, asks the slave, can't you just go through the motions of worshiping Artemis? Can't you just say it, even if you don't mean it? Can't you just go through the motions? Listen to his reply. The slave says, My master's gods have never cared for slaves. Artemis cares for the free citizens of Ephesus and watches over the wealth of the cities and the nobles who have entrusted their riches to her house. She owns many, she owns many slaves who spend their lives working in her temple and on her vast estates. Augustus and Rome have been prolific gods in creating slaves out of free persons and ensuring a master's rights over his property, even when that property is a human being like them. And how many slaves like myself have perished for nothing more than an hour's entertainment in honor of Augustus or Vespasian? But the God of Jesus is very different. He cares so much about his slaves that his own son took the form of a slave spending his life in service to others, dying the death of a slave nailed to a cross so that they might live forever. And not just freeborn people, but the slaves as well. God restored his son Jesus to life on the first day of the week, confirming his promise that no one who follows him will be held by death, but will live with him forever. This slave understands why he can't just go through the motions, why he can't just say the words to avoid the repercussions. The Ephesian mob understands the importance of declaring loyalty to the civil religion, and the followers of the way understand the impossibility of doing so because of their loyalty to King Jesus. The third speaker is Alexander, pushed forward by the Jews. Now, technically, he doesn't get the chance to speak, but he really wants to. We're told he tries. He motions with his hand because he wants to make with his hands because he wants to make a defense. So I'm going to count him as a speaker. What was he going to say? It seems pretty safe, and everything I read, there's almost complete consensus on this. He was going to defend the Jews by separating them from the followers of Jesus. Remember that Jews and their worship, their way of life were protected under the law. The last thing they wanted was a reversal of that because of any chaos created by the way. 
Demetrius understood the lifestyle threat. The, the Ephesians understood the loyalty threat. Alexander and the Jews understood the theological or the persecution threat. They needed to distinguish themselves theologically to avoid being persecuted along with the followers of Jesus. Alexander, however, is prevented from speaking. The Jews' understanding of the threat to them posed by Christians is confirmed as the mob renews their shouts of loyalty to Artemis upon recognizing Alexander as a Jew. The final speaker is the city clerk. Like any good city official, he reminds the crowd that they need to fill out the proper paperwork <laughs> if they're going to be doing such things. If they want to bring charges against the Christians, there's a right way to do it. There are right channels through which they need to go. But he says much more. His argument is basically this. Artemis is great and everyone knows it. Why make a big deal out of these Christians? Somewhat similar to Gallio's statement, but not quite. The real force of this city clerk's argument, however, what really disperses the crowd is what we read in verse 40. He says this, For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to explain this disorderly gathering. The city clerk understands that civil religion can only secure and maintain peace through force, through violence, or through the, through the threat of violence. Rome ma maintained their well-known peace, the Pax Romana, by force, always. The city clerk is warning the mob that if they don't disperse, they will be dispersed, and some of them in the process may very well be dispatched. So, is Christianity a threat to the state, to the civil religion? Again, yes and no. It's a blessing and a curse, depending on who's looking at it. It presents both a promise and a threat. It is a threat to the culture of civil religion. It's a threat by lifestyle. It's a threat by loyalty. And it's a threat by theology. Where civil religion maintains a facade of peace by force, Christianity promises a peace that comes by Jesus who suffered violence. Let's go back and consider Demetrius and others like him. Again, he speaks the truth. So what are his options? Well, one is to continue discrediting and stirring up trouble for the Christians. And if Rome doesn't crack down on him first, he may get Rome to act. He might get Paul and some of his followers in prison and maybe even executed. History tells us that these kinds of things happen from time to time. But rather than quieting Christianity, it almost always promoted its spread and its growth. What else can Demetrius do? <clears throat> Demetrius could follow Jesus, right? He can believe what Paul and the others are saying. Yes, but this will cost him his livelihood. Perhaps he has a large family to care for. 
Perhaps it will bring shame on him and on them. Perhaps his former friends and associates will ostracize him, making him unable to do any work at all in the city. This is where the church, as it relates to the state, can be a blessing and source of promise. If Demetrius or someone like him chooses to follow Jesus, who's going to take care of him when he can't feed his family, when he can't find a job? Why, his brothers and sisters in Christ will, according to the pattern we've seen in Acts. Are we in a different place today? 2,000 years almost removed? Thousands and thousands of miles away? Are we in a different place today? I don't think so. Following Jesus, even in the United States, will present a risk to you and a threat to our civil religion. And it doesn't matter from that perspective who resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It matters who resides in your heart and where you will reside for eternity. That's where our hope is. That's where the promise is. For those of you who have already settled that question, it's imperative that in the chaos of our world today, which I can only imagine will increase as we get closer and closer to election day, it's imperative that we live out our allegiance and our loyalty to Jesus as our King Make sure no one's confused about who we follow. Follow him. Serve him. Love your neighbors as you love yourself, like Bill reminded the kids this morning. Love your enemies. Turn them into neighbors. Be a blessing. Point to the promise that you have found in the gospel. Continue in your faith. Endure and overcome. Amen. Would you pray with me?